Hello, this is Christy Amira Harfouche, and you're listening to the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. We have a message for you today from Reverend John Harfouche. For more information, live broadcasts, and video teachings, connect with us online at globalrevival.com and join us every week for the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. you don't know me this morning, I didn't introduce myself. I'm Reverend John Michael Emmanuel Harfouche. And welcome to the house of the Lord. Uh, You can turn to chapter 17 in the gospel of the disciple that Jesus loved. After Jesus' resurrection... After the price was paid, he did not disappear. He came and he preached and he commissioned his people. And in chapter 17 of the book of John, the resurrected Christ prays. Right? Or is this right before his crucifixion or right after? Okay. So Jesus prays regarding his disciples that he's called. He lifts his eyes up to heaven and he prays. And what does he say? He says in, we'll start in verse 10, And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. I'm not going to read his whole prayer because it's long, but you'll get the point. And now I am no more in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me that they may be one as we are. Right? In verse 17, it says, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. As thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them that they may be one, even as we are one. Are you noticing a pattern? I in them and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me and hast loved them 
as thou hast loved me. And so what is Jesus praying here in his priestly prayer? What is he talking about? Well, he said, the same way that you sent me, I'm sending them. And so our mission is the same mission as Christ's. He said, the same way that we are one, they let them be one. And so our unity is supposed to be the same as the unity between the Father and the Son. That they may be holy. He says sanctified. The word is hagios, holy. That they may be holy as I am holy. And so we're called to be, we're prayed for by Christ to be holy like he is holy. And that the world may believe that you have sent me. So that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Now, who is Jesus talking about in this scripture? He defines it. He says, I'm not praying for these alone. His apostles, his disciples, his followers, those that had already come to believe on him. But for them also, which shall believe on me through their word. And so this prayer represents a definition of the characteristics of the church. Now, to be clear, the word church comes from ecclesia, which means uh, the assembly. But it also means the called out ones. But it's not called out individuals because that would be a scattering. It's those that are called out of one thing and into another thing. The word means, even without him saying four times that they may be one even as we are one, it is an assembly. It is the church. We came to use the English word church, which comes from uh, the house of the Lord. But many churches that speak other languages still use the term assembly, right? The assembly, the church. The two terms are the same. In the English language, we use church. The etymology is slightly different, but that's what it means. But the point is, Jesus did not leave things up in the air before he went up in the air. He had a specific prayer and a specific direction and a specific expectation for his followers of what they would and should be. Hallelujah. Well, uh, before we sit down still, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep you standing, you know. Uh, I, I, w- I would like to uh, uh, just read something because I would like you guys to read something. You know what it is because it is very relevant to what we will be talking about this morning. Hallelujah. You know, we spoke extensively at Pentecost about The true unity being the church. The answer being the church. 
the gospel being the church. But today we're going to talk about how to recognize the church so that when you see the church, you will know it is the church. And when you see what is not the church, you will know that it is not the church. Hallelujah. Well, there is a tool that we have been handed down throughout the ages for the purpose of recognizing the church and recognizing each other. And it is what we call the creed, which means uh, we, what we call the belief or what we call we believe. It comes from credo, I believe. Hallelujah. Well, if you have that ready, put that up and we'll read that. And this is our translation that we use. How many of you are familiar with this? Let's read it together. It says, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God. Begotten of the Father before all ages. God of God, light of light, true God of true God. Begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. By whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, suffered and died, was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father. From thence he shall come again with great glory To judge the living and the dead, of whose kingdom there shall be no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceedeth from the Father and the Son, who is with the Father and the Son to be worshipped and glorified, who spake by the prophets and the apostles. And we believe in one holy, universal apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. We look to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, if you believe that, give the Lord a shout. Hallelujah. And, and you may be seated this morning. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. How do you recognize the church? Now, many, as, many of you, as many of you may know, this document, this creed, this statement of faith of the church was created for the express purpose of identifying the church, of identifying the Christian. This statement or this rule of faith is something that was assembled so that it could be the statement of faith of someone and you could know that if this was their statement of faith, then they are a Christian. Hallelujah. Now, thank the Lord that 
over a millennia later, the vast majority of people who call themselves Christian can speak this creed in full agreement. Hallelujah. There are some who cannot, but, well, that's why it exists. So that you know who believes what we believe. Hallelujah. And so this, uh, this statement of faith, this rule of faith, was made for that purpose. Now, the irony of this statement of faith is that there's a vast swath of Christians in different groups and different denominations and different divisions, despite the fact that this statement is pre-denominational. When we talk about pre-denominational, we're talking about a time period where there was one church, not just in doctrine, but in practice. When there was not any denominations or any separate groups, there was just the church. And that period lasted, for the most part, for a thousand years. But especially in the early portions of that, there's no controversy about what it is that the church believes. There is periodic uh, small groups of heretics that pop up espousing certain ideas. I know the word heretic is bad these days. People get upset when you say heretic because it implies that some uh, truths are correct and other truths aren't truths at all. It implies that, you know, there's just one right way. I'm sorry. It's actually, it doesn't just imply that. It means that explicitly. Um, but there were, there were group, there was ideas that would pop up in the church time after time in different parts of the world that had to be answered by the church. And so there were these statements of faith that existed from the early portions of the church. And how many of you recognize there is not a single line in that creed that is not directly based upon scripture? It's an entirely scriptural statement of faith. It was made in a time that was pre-denominational when there was an agreement as to what the church believed and people recognized that person in that other nation who speaks that other language believes what Jesus taught and is my brother and is my sister and we are one family, we're one body, right? Now today, in a world where there's many divisions and denominations and splits, there's a whole lot of people that, for some reason, do not believe that believing that is enough to make you a Christian. There are additional tests and additional requirements that people would like to add. Which is strange. It's very strange. Even stranger... There are people who believe that the people that assembled that statement of faith could not be trusted. 
and that they were motivated by governments and earthly powers and not by the Lord, and yet they believe what's in that statement of faith. In fact, they often quote that statement of faith in their churches despite claiming that the people who wrote that did not represent Christianity and were not Christian. That's like saying, oh yeah, of course, I believe in all the epistles of Paul. He was absolutely right, but he wasn't a Christian. That's like saying, of course, I believe in the gospel of John. Everything in it is the inspired word of God, but he wasn't a Christian. Would that make any sense? Would that make any sense? Listen, if someone says, this is what I believe, and what they believe is the word of God, then you can say, oh, that person's a Christian. The apostles even tell us, no man can say that Christ is crucified, that Christ saved us, if he is not a Christian, if he is not led by the spirit of God to say that. Now, does that mean that someone can't say that and be doctrinally wrong in some other area? Of course not. Of course not. But our job is not to shave off everyone who doesn't look like we look or act like we act or talk like we talk and try to introduce some kind of rule of faith that God did not introduce to try to make some kind of division in the church that God did not make, to try to add some kind of test to Christianity beyond what God added. How many of you recognize that that's not okay? That that is not acceptable? So we're, we come to a place where we have to recognize that if someone believes that, they are our brother. They are our sister. They are, no matter how wrong they might be about other things, no matter how they might live, you should be ministering to them if they need correction. Because it looks and there's nothing wrong with correction. Paul corrected Peter. If Peter can get corrected by Paul, then anyone can get corrected. Thank God. Thank God. There is no one who cannot be corrected when somebody, when somebody, one of their brothers, listen, Paul didn't correct Peter because he had a problem with him or because he disliked him or because he didn't believe that he was a real Christian. He corrected him because he was his brother. Because he was his co-laborer. Because he loved him. Listen, you correct people you love. When someone you don't care about does something stupid, you just let them do it. You're like, okay. You do you. But when a member of your family goes to do something stupid, you, you help them out. doesn't mean they're not a member of your family. They did something stupid. They're not a member of my family anymore. 
oh no, he's not my son anymore. He, when he was two, he tried to put a fork in an electric socket. <laughs> Disqualified him. <laughs> we don't put forks in electric sockets around here. No. No, right? Okay. Now listen, I'm just laying the foundation for the word that I'm going to give you, which is how to recognize the church. But we have to understand this. We have to understand this. The creed that we now read, which is more fleshed out than some of the creeds that came before it, but the words are uh, absolutely familiar to not just the creeds that came before it, but the statements of faith that are made throughout the Bible. Paul says um, in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered unto you first of all that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. That is verbatim in the statement of faith that we have now. We read some of Polycarp's writings and some of Irenaeus's writings and you might remember Irenaeus's creed that they had in the church at Lyon in his time. Like 150 years before this creed was assembled. And this creed, by the way, was assembled by all of the churches that came together because they had their own. And they came to the conclusion that none of their creeds could root out the particular heresy that they were running up against at the beginning of the 4th century. There was a group of people that believed something that was unacceptable in the gospel But they were deceptive enough that they could claim they believed in the creed and were were true Christians. And so the churches decided, listen, we're we're looking at all of our different creeds that we use and we we need a more perfect one. We need to come together and we need to make a rule of faith that cannot be cheated by a heretic. Right? And these rules, let me, let me give you, if you don't remember, um, here's something Irenaeus said. The church, though dispersed throughout the whole world, even to the ends of the earth, has received from the apostles and their disciples this faith. And he goes on to quote the creed that they had in the church that he was the bishop over. And it might sound familiar to you. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the sea and all things that are in them, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who became incarnate for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who proclaimed through the prophets the dispensations of God, and the advents, and the birth from a virgin, and the passion, and the resurrection from the dead, and the ascension unto heaven in the flesh of the beloved Christ Jesus, our Lord, and his future manifestation from heaven in the glory of the Father, to gather all things into one, and to raise up a new all flesh and the whole human race. I'm, I'm going to get me. Different wording, but a lot of it's exactly the same. And who is Irenaeus? Irenaeus was the disciple of, of, of uh, Polycarp, who was the disciple of the Apostle John. Right? 
And so we have these creeds, we have these statements of faith in different churches that get lengthened and shortened. We took out the sea and everything in the sea. Uh, I think everything visible and invisible is a little shorter and clearer than mentioning like fishes and birds and stuff like that. Right? Everything visible and invisible is a great statement. It's like everything. Visible and invisible covers everything. Everything that could possibly exist is covered in visible and invisible. Right? Well, why am I talking about this? I'm talking about this because before we talk about what is in the creed, we have to understand that the creed is reliable. Now, like I said, it's an ironic thing to have to understand because people who agree with every statement in the creed still want to act like it's not reliable. Still want to call into the question the people that wrote it. And the way it generally goes is this. Christianity was persecuted for hundreds of years. People were uh, being killed and fed to lions and burned at the stake. And we've been talking about some of that recently. We're all very familiar with it. And then after the worst persecution that the church ever faced in that time, which was the Diocletian persecution, the great persecution, when more Christians were killed, you know, at any time up until then. Right? It's the worst persecution that the church had faced. The emperor of Rome who was formerly, Rome was the enemy of the Christians, converted to Christianity, made Christianity legal, and then called a council, a general council of all of the bishops all over the world to talk about the central doctrine of the faith. Now, the way that this is usually presented is that that is the point at which the church became apostate. Because the emperor took over, and the government took over, and they changed what the church believed. That's the way that it's usually presented. Now, I would say that that is a horrific accusation to throw against the Christians in that time. The Christians at the end of the third century. These are the same men who were just being killed. There's a particular man who's talked about who had the brand on his face of being a Christian because he refused to deny Christ. Most of these people were in prison before this council happened. These were people from all over Africa, the Middle East, Europe, Persia, India, there was people there from England, every part of the earth were there. Church leaders who had refused to deny Christ under threat of death. And you're telling me that those people who were willing to die for the truth of the gospel Sold out because a law was passed making Christianity legal. I have more faith in those men than I do in modern people who have not faced that level of persecution. 
who have not been tried in that level of fire. And if you agree with what they decided at that council, then why would you have any reason to believe that what they did was wrong? Why would you quote them out of one side of your mouth and vilify them out of the other side of your mouth? If they were not true Christians, where were the true Christians? The, the acts of the council that we have passed down to us are from historians who started writing Christian history in prison because they were concerned that so many Christians would die that no one would be alive who remembered the history of the Christians. And so they wrote the first written histories, the first written ecclesiastical histories to try and preserve the history of the church because they thought that they were all going to get wiped out by this persecution. And then God moved and saved the emperor. Okay? Listen, I don't know how excellent his doctrine was. I don't care how excellent his doctrine was. I don't know how holy his, his practice of life was. I don't care. What he did by legalizing Christianity did not invalidate what Christ did on the cross. It did not make those men and women of God who are our brothers and sisters who are looking down on us from heaven right now not Christians. They preached the same word that we preach today. They preach the same word that Christians all over the world are preaching today. There is no excuse for vilifying those men or acting like they are less Christian than people living comfortably in the first world today who can practice their religion without fear of attack from their governments. And if you're a Christian, like many of our people are in nations where they are oppressed by their governments and their worship is not legal, then you know even better how much you can trust those men who walked through the same thing. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And so what happened? What happened? Well, there was a new heresy on the block. And there was a, a bishop who was preaching that Jesus Christ is not God. So unless you agree with him, no? Okay, so he was preaching that Jesus Christ is not God, that Jesus Christ is a created being like the best angel or something like that. He's not the same as God is. He's not God. He's just, you know, Jesus. He's a created thing. You know, like the devil is. Or like you are. Just you but better. 
many of you read the Bible in here? How many of you know how many, how many times we see exactly who Jesus is? How many of you know he is the express image of the Father? He's in the Father, and the Father is in him. How many of you know that Thomas said, my Lord and my God? Are we polytheists? Do we believe in multiple gods? Do we believe that there are three gods? Or do we believe that there is one God? Well, if we believe that there is one God, then we cannot accept what that heretic believed then. And what he believed was counter to what the church had always believed. And you can look at the creeds that came before. You can look at the statements that were made by the men of God that came before. We know who Jesus is. It's kind of an important part of Christianity. So what happened? The council was called because this newly converted emperor found the arguments of this man convincing. And there was a greater and greater number of people who were starting to come to the side of this bishop who was saying that Jesus is a little g God. He's a created God. He's not God God. And so the emperor, listen, he came out of a pagan background. He was a polytheist before he got saved, right? He thought that what this man was saying was convincing and he saw that there was this division and he recognized that the two ways of understanding who God is could not coexist with one another. And so he called a council and paid the travel expenses of all of the bishops from every part of the world to come together and meet and determine which was the actual Christian belief. What is it that the apostles handed down? And so all those people met, over 300 bishops and their retinues. How many people do you think that was that they brought with them? Over 300 bishops met from India, from Africa, from Asia, from the Middle East, from Persia, from Armenia, from Spain, from France, from England. Of course, France didn't exist then, and Spain didn't exist then, and England didn't exist then, but geographically the same locations, right? From all of those places came together, and all but 10 of them said, uh, no? You're wrong? Bomb! <laughs> Incorrect! And the 300 signed a statement of faith that we use until now. Now, there was some slight textual revisions done at a follow-up conference because some people were like, hey, we can make this a little bit clearer. But that creed that was made then still applies today. And listen, if that's what they came together and determined, and what they determined was this is what the word of God says, and it is what the word of God says, 
then you can confirm that they were on the right page, that they agreed. Now, I don't know how people think that these people from thousands of miles apart from each other, in different cultures, with different languages, in different places, all who had been under threat of death until right before this council happened, suddenly became apostate as soon as Christianity was legalized. Suddenly changed everything they believed about God. I don't know how people believe that. That's ridiculous. And the irony is, the decision that they made was in disagreement with the emperor. The emperor was a friend of Arius. They anathemaed Arius. Like Paul said, let him be anathema. Let him be cast out. They removed Arius' position. They deposed him. He was no longer a bishop, and he was no longer a Christian. And the emperor campaigned to get him reinstated for years. So tell me how they compromised their faith to follow the lead of the law of the time when they made, a, they made a ruling that was directly opposed to the will of the emperor. Tell me how. That makes no sense. Now, you know what happened to Arius? Eventually, the emperor managed to convince some people to reinstate him. And then before he made it to his reinstatement ceremony, he died. There's a couple different records of how that happened. Most of them involve him dying in the street as he was walking to get reinstated, struck down by God. So I think we can be pretty sure that he was the one who was in the wrong. If they agreed with the emperor, maybe you could make an argument. But they disagreed with the emperor. Not only did they disagree with the emperor, but the emperor was like, okay, fine. Right? Because he hadn't declared himself the head of the church. He was not a bishop. He did not hold ecclesiastical authority. There were later earthly rulers that arrested control of the church and tried to control the people of God. There's no doubt about that. That happened. Why why do you think we have separation of church and state today? The reason we have separation of church and state is because we do not believe that any earthly government has the power to dictate to the church of God what to believe. It's, uh, It's above your pay grade. You don't have the authority. And, and we're incredibly blessed to live in a nation where even though people seemingly forget it occasionally, that right is considered by law to be above the law. The law states that that's a right that we have that the law can't take away. Not that that's a right that the law gives us. And that's how it should be. 
that's how it should be because that's how it is. No earthly government has any authority in the kingdom of God. No one can vote God out or vote to change the belief of the church or vote to change what the faith is. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So listen, I recognize you getting a little squeamish when there's governments that are interested in what the church is doing. I, I feel the same. Right? Hands off. Hands off. Right? But there is no reason to impugn to these men, to indict these men of, of, of being apostates when they stood up for the faith of God in the face of the emperor who was the only reason that they could legally practice their faith. Do you think maybe some people thought, well, hey, listen, maybe we shouldn't rock the boat. They were just killing us a second ago. And now the emperor wants us to help his friend out and say that he's a Christian. They could have said that. They didn't. They said anathema. Anathema Maranatha. Let him be anathema. The kingdom is nigh you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Okay. So that's done. If, if you believe that something else happened at those councils or some other things, you're, you believe that in complete opposition to every historical record that exists. We have the account of every law, every canon, every ruling that was passed at that council passed down. And it's all totally in line with the word of God. And it's all pre-denominational and was agreed to by the whole church at the time. It wasn't one culture oppressing every other culture. This was the multicultural church that we're a part of right now. There was African... The, one of the, the, the bishops who is most uh, um, honored as being one of the most important people at that council, fighting for what the apostolic doctrine was, wasn't even a bishop at the time. He was a deacon from Africa. So the whole church got together. All of us got together and we were like, no, this is what we believe. And we can speak that same rule of faith today and stand on it and know that it represents the core of the Christian faith. Hallelujah. And, and the vast majority, the vast majority of people that even call themselves Christian agree with everything that is in that creed. So if you agree with what those men preached about God... If you agree with what they believe, if you agree that their faith is the Christian faith, then don't act like they're disqualified from being Christian by some other thing that you've decided. Doesn't even make any sense. If you've got an issue with the creed, we can talk about that and I'll prove you that you're wrong in the Bible. Because you're wrong. So, now that that's settled, (laughs) 
let's talk about what we're here to talk about, which is how do you recognize the church? If the church is what God founded in the earth to be the answer for the world, then surely it is important for you to find the church. Surely it is important for you to be a part of that church because that's what Christianity is. There's a a number of ordinances that the Lord gave us, things that he told us to do that are a part of salvation. And one of them is believing in your heart and confessing. Another one is baptism. Now, we talked about this with Paul. Why? why, Listen, surely the Lord does not need to put you in physical water in order to save your eternal soul. If he didn't want to institute baptism, then he could have probably done it a different way. But he gives us ordinances. Now, some of those ordinances, sacraments, mysteries, whatever, are to deal with certain situations, right? Like laying on of hands to heal the sick, the anointing with oil to heal the sick. There are also things like ordination. And there are things like marriage, which we know is a miracle. Christian marriage is a miracle. It says that God puts those two people together. And no earthly authority can separate what God has put together. That's a miracle. That's a miraculous thing. That is a Christian thing. That is in the church. That is separate from any legal organization or structure or natural law. Even if they describe it with the same words. Right? Because what Christ introduced as marriage was different from the marriage that came before in the law. He said that that, those rules were given to you because of the hardness of your hearts. But this is a better way. This is the true way. This is the way that it should be. So marriage is instituted. But marriage doesn't happen to everybody. Laying on of hands to heal the sick pretty much happens to everybody, but not all the time. Ordination doesn't happen to everybody all the time. But there are three of those mysteries, three of those things that Jesus told us to do that are directly related to us being Christians and being saved. One of them is baptism, which cannot be done. You confess with your heart, right? You believe in your heart, you confess with your mouth, you're saved. You get baptized. We talked about Paul. Jesus himself appeared to Paul. But a member of the church still had to come and baptize Paul. I think it's pretty clear why during Jesus' earthly ministry, he had his disciples baptize people rather than him baptizing those people himself. Because he was showing what it was that he was building. He is the apostle of our confession. He was sent apostello by God. And he said, as I am sent, so send apostello, apostle, I you. Baptism. So there's two steps, right? Right there. So you can get, you can meet Jesus on the road in a vision. 
but you still got to find the church or the church has to find you and baptize you into the body of Christ and communion. So he gave us the salvation. He gave us the baptism in the body and he gave us the continual communion with the church. Why did he give us those three things if not to show us? Why would those be the essentials of Christian life? Not just confess and be saved. Not just be baptized into the body of Christ. But then continually eat. Continually eat that one bread that makes you one with the whole body. Because it's not a one-time thing. It is a lifelong thing. You are part of the body of Christ. And the very ordinances that Jesus told us to follow prove that the church is the life of a Christian. The very concept of those ordinances prove, they preach the gospel of the church. And so it shouldn't be a surprise that the four sort of stanzas, the four headers in the creed are, we believe in one God and in one Lord Jesus Christ and we believe in the Holy Spirit and we believe in the church. Those are the four. Why, why would the test of a Christian... Why would the confession that proves that someone is a member of the body of Christ name the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and the church? Why did those Christians who lived all that time ago, who went through all that persecution, think that those were the essentials of what Christianity was? Now listen, the whole thing is in here. The scriptures are in here. The Holy Ghost speaking by the prophets, the Old Testament, and the apostles, the New Testament, is in there. The death and resurrection, the payment for the sins, eternal life, the second coming of Christ, it's all in there. But the four headers are we believe in the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, and the church. Hallelujah. So if the purpose of the creed is to tell us what Christianity is, what does it tell us about the church? You might find some of it familiar if you were paying attention when Jesus was praying to God about the church. We believe in one holy, universal, apostolic church. These four things came to be known as the four marks of the church. These were the things that showed you what the church was and what the church wasn't. If a church was not those things, then it was not the church that they were talking about in the creed. Well, where does that come from? 
Let them be one, even as we are one. That they would be holy, even as I am holy. Apostolic, so as I was sent, so send I them. And universal, so that the whole world would believe. And not only that, but also not just these, but all those that will believe on me according to their words. And so those four things are not just biblical. They're spoken by the mouth of the Lord when he is talking about the church. They are his prayer for us. How many of you are going to stand in faith with Jesus that his prayer will come true? How many of you believe that the Lord hears Jesus? That You guys believe your prayers come true? You better believe Jesus' prayers come true. Right? Well, what do they mean? If you look at earlier creeds, sometimes they'll only have one or the other because they kind of fleshed it out over time because they were like, oh, we need to like explain against these people and explain against these people because people were inventing all kinds of crazy ideas that were not what the apostles taught. That's why in that passage we quoted from Irenaeus, he says, if anybody wants to know what the apostles taught, just seek out the churches that the apostles founded and ask them. That's simple. Right? And they'll tell you that what these other people over there believe is not what the apostles taught. Listen, if the apostles delivered the faith one time, then there's no other faith delivery. If even an angel preaches to you another gospel, let him be damned. Right? There's no other gospel. There's just the faith that was once delivered that we earnestly contend for. So those randos over in, you know, the Black Sea coming up with their new weird alternative Christianity aren't Christians because they're not following the faith that the apostles handed down. Well, how many of you want to be Christians in church this morning? So let's talk about the four marks. The first is one. We believe in one. One church. Now, if you've been around the last several weeks, you probably don't need a lot to understand that. But Ephesians 4 says there is one body. Are you the body of Christ? Is there one body? And one spirit. Even as you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Which is further confirmation of the Trinity because the Holy Ghost is in us which is the other comforter that Jesus said he was going to send. But Jesus also said, I will be in you. And this scripture says, the Father is in you. So if the Holy Ghost is in you and as a result, the Son and the Father are both in you that you should understand what the Trinity is. Right? Hallelujah. One. It is one. 
First Corinthians 12 says, for as the body is one and hath many members and all the members of that one body being many are one body. So also is Christ for by one spirit, we are all baptized into one body. Whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. And so we are one. We are one. Why do we stand on pre-denominationalism? Why do we talk about the era where there was no denominations? Why do we say that you as Christians should look at that time of agreement And recognize that we are all in agreement on those precepts. And that that makes us one. Because there is only one church. You cannot divide the body of Christ. Hallelujah. And so the body body of Christ, the church, has to be one. The second is holy. How important is that? There's some unholy places that call themselves churches today. And there are some Christians that don't believe that holiness is available. Who think that living just like the world is what God somehow called them to. Who don't think that holiness is a thing. They see themselves as wretched sinners. Who God is just like, oh, I'm going to go ahead and just look away slightly so I'm not grossed out by all of your wretched sin. Rather than as people who have been crucified with Christ and resurrected with him, who have been given a new nature. Our holiness is not of us. Our holiness is of him. Like he said, I sanctify myself so that they can be holy. And so holy, holy also means set apart. They are in the world, but they are not of the world. The church is set apart. The church is is sanctified unto God. The church cannot be touched by your gross, nasty, sinful, worldly hands because the church is God's bride. It's his wife. I don't want to say any more than that. Hallelujah. I sanctify myself that they might be sanctified. Hagios. That they might be holy through the truth. And Hebrews says, wherefore, holy brethren. Are we the brethren? That's what we were called before the word Christian was invented. Right? We were the brethren. Which was a gender neutral term at the time in Greek. Adelphos. Right? Partakers of the heavenly calling. Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession. Christ Jesus, our profession. Hallelujah. First uh, Peter 1 says, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so the church is not... Uh, uh, is not some decrepit earthly organization. It's not just a bunch of sinners getting together to talk about how they can't wait to die and be holy. The church is holy and it is called out. And in the same way, the church is not 
on the same level as earthly organizations and earthly governments and earthly groups. It is not on the same level as, as worldly people that do not serve God. It is set apart. It is holy. Now, does that mean we don't preach? Of course it doesn't mean that we don't preach. But when you call someone to change their life, you're calling them to be holy. You're not calling them to stay exactly the way that they currently are. Universal. This word in the Greek is katholikos, right? It's where the word Catholic comes from. And it means uh, 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 concerning the whole. Pertaining to the whole. Uh, Katho is concerning or kato and holo is the whole. 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 We get the word whole from holo, which is in catholo. Clear, right? Concerning the whole. But what does this mean in reference to the church? It means that the church is all sufficient and applies to all people in all the world in all times. The church is universal. It even includes those who are members of the body who are already in the presence of God. Like the word of God says, Jesus, whom, in whom, by whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And um, Jesus gave us in the Great Commission, he said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Right? That's universal. If you look, if you listen, you'll often hear us and, and describe the apostolic global church as universal in mission. Right? And as orthodox in doctrine and as apostolic in evangelism. Now, orthodox just means uh, we believe what is the right way. Ortho means right. Dox means glory or way. Right? The, the right glory, the right way. And if you've got a problem with that and you think that there's other ways, then you don't believe in what the Bible says. You don't believe that there's just the one faith. You don't believe that there's just the one gospel. You don't believe... When the Bible says that Jesus is the only way to God. And that's fine, but you're not a Christian. <laughs> Universal. So there doesn't need to be some other Jesus for the people living in some other country somewhere. There is just the one Jesus. And we are all now one body. And there's no division among us. And we're called to preach the gospel in every nation to every creature. Right? Right? The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, it says in 2 Peter, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is what his will is, whether or not people, you know, decide to be in agreement with him on that. Um, right? And you, I don't need to give you a ton of examples, but, you know, go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all the things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Right? Uh, but, but universal also means um, 
a couple other things uh, when it's used in reference to the church. It means that the church covers all, right? It covers everybody. It also means that it is all in, it is, it represents the wholeness of the faith, the whole gospel. And so the entire gospel is represented and preached by that church. Now, that's not the traditional way that it's talked about, but that's one of the ways that it's interpreted. So it's good to be part of a church that represents the fullness of the faith. There's nothing left out. There's no books that they're not reading to you. There's no uh, mysteries that they're not giving you. They're not leaving out any healing, any blessing, anything like that, right? And it, and it also means representing the whole church, meaning what the whole church believes. That is how it was often used in the early centuries, like I was saying, when, when Irenaeus said, if you want to know what the apostles taught, seek out the churches that the apostles founded and ask them. He said, because in every nation of the world, despite being separated by language and distance, the whole church speaks as if they had but one mouth and but one soul. And so that is also the meaning of universal, right? And then apostolic. Hallelujah. How many of you know what apostolic means? How many of you know what apostle means? It means a sent one. It is someone who has been sent, an apostle, right? And the church is apostolic not only because, see, there's a couple, we say apostolic in evangelism, right? That's not redundant, right? That's not just sent to evangelize because there's more to apostolic than just that. There's a lot encapsulated in that word, right? The book of Acts says that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in breaking of bread. There's that communion again. There's that that thing that the Lord gave you to remind you that you're a Christian because you're a part of the church. It's very strange. Um, uh, Right? It's apostolic because it's the apostolic doctrine. It's what the apostles taught. But it also means founded by the apostles. We read the scripture and we read it and we could read it in regards to one, the earlier Mark one, right? But Ephesians says, now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So you've got the one and the holy there, right? And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto an, singular, holy temple in the Lord, which we talked about before. You're not just the temple of God as an individual. You're actually a stone is how you're defined. The temple of God is the church. Okay. 
So apostolic does not just mean following in the apostles' doctrine. It means founded by the apostles. It means that that faith and that power and that anointing has been passed down from generation to generation to generation and is that same one church that the, was founded by Christ on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. That was the work of the apostles in the church who Christ sent, right? And we know no other foundation can one lay than this, which is Christ Jesus. But the scripture tells us the apostles are a part of that foundation, right? And then also, also, uh, also, what did Paul say when he was talking about being an apostle? Paul wasn't one of the 12. He said, he said, look, truly the signs of an apostle have been wrought among you. And so when we say we're apostolic, we don't just mean we're sent. We don't just mean that we are the descendants of those that founded the church. We mean that we are walking in the signs of the apostles. We are seeing the miracles. We are seeing the deliverance. Listen, the, the gospel of Mark ends with, and the Lord went with them confirming the word with signs following. Jesus himself said, and lo, I am with you even until the end of the age. I said this last week. If Jesus is with you, then his power is with you. If Jesus is with you, he's got no reason not to confirm the word with signs following. And that's why we have International Miracle Institute. That's why we believe in miracles. That's why we talk about miracles. And if you're a Christian, you should believe in miracles. And you should believe that miracles are for today. And if you don't, you need to crack open that Bible. <laughs> or, or sign up for Heavenly Identity. If you need some help. You know. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So... How do you recognize the church? The church. What is the church? It's not just a church. It's not just one church. It is one church. But it's not one among many. It is the one. It is holy. It is universal. And it is apostolic. And so those are the traits of a, that is the traits of the church, not according to apostolic global church, not according to apostle Dr. Christian Harfouche, not according to Reverend John Michael Emmanuel Harfouche, not according to the text that we wrote up on our website, <laughs> but according to the consensus of all of the bishops from all of the world the first time that they were given the opportunity to gather in a time of peace and make a declaration of what it was that the church believes and the church stands for. And so if we're going to contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints, then that 
is the truth that we have to contend for. That is the word that we have to contend for. We have to contend for that faith. And we have to recognize, I mean, that's why, that's why we're pre-denominational. That's why pre-denominationalism is important. Because that's the gospel. Right? That is the gospel. You know, people talk about the, the, there's a, there's a, the, the word of God says that the gospel will be preached in all nations to all creatures and then the end shall come. Right? How many of you agree with the statement that that doesn't just mean a part of the gospel? That that doesn't just mean a gospel. That when it says the gospel, it means the fullness of the gospel. Everything the gospel represents. And so we have, we have different terms that people use, like full gospel, to describe themselves because they believe in everything that's in the gospel, right? Well, how many of you know that the church is part of the gospel? The church is part of the full gospel. These definitions, if the words of Jesus are not the gospel, I don't know what gospel you're believing in. If his prayer, if the thing that he's praying for for us is to be one and to be holy and to reach out to every nation and every creature on this planet and to be apostolic, if that is his prayer for us, then what are we doing if we're not contending for that? What are we doing if we're not contending for that? That's who we are. We're the body of Christ. Now, listen, I understand that sometimes there are natural barriers. And there are a whole lot of Christians out there that need to learn the word better so that they recognize who is their brother and who is not their brother. Right? Because not everybody is a member of the body of Christ. Right? Not everybody is a member of the body of Christ. And there's a whole lot of people that need to learn. But listen, it's not different from the fact that Christ perfected you when you were born again. But he's perfecting you from glory to glory since then. Just like salvation was not just the confession. Just like it was not just the baptism. Just like it, it is not only the communion, but those things are all a part of it. You were perfected by Christ. You were justified by Christ. Not by anything you did, but that's not where it ended. Because you can walk out that justification. You can walk out that transformation. You're called to step closer to what God died to make you every day of your life. The church as the body of Christ is called to the same. And so Christ made us one on the cross. That's already done. So just like you can say when on the outside, what's happening on the outside might not reflect the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ. You know that he 
saved you. That he justified you. That he made you righteous. That he set you apart and made you holy. That he called you. That he empowered you. And so you know that it is finished on the cross. You know that you were healed by his stripes. In the same way, you need to know that God made us one family and one brotherhood and one people. And so no earthly denomination can separate the body of Christ. Just because an organization exists or a person who is a child of God for one reason or another thinks you're not one of them. They're still going to be spending eternity with you in heaven. And they're still going to be a part of the body of Christ in heaven with you. Right? So if you can recognize that there is what God made you, and there's you stepping into that by continually drawing closer to God, then you can recognize that there is what God made the church. And the church stepping into a fuller manifestation of that. Listen, when the Bible talks about the entirety of creation earnestly waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, that's not just about us individually. That's about us as one, as the church. We know that because it's in Jesus' priestly prayer. Make them one. Make them holy. I have sent them so that the whole world would believe, so that all of creation would believe. And so the manifestation of the sons of God that they're waiting for is not just you being recreated in Christ's image, but it is like Ephesians said, until we all come in the unity of the faith unto one perfect man in the fullness and the stature of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen, that's, that to me seems like an even greater miracle than God making you like him. I mean, believing that one person can step into the fullness of the stature of Jesus Christ by themselves is crazy enough. Believing that we all can come together in the unity of the faith unto one man, like one body, like one man, the whole thing in the fullness in the stature of Jesus Christ. I understand why Jesus was praying. But how many of you know that what's impossible with man is possible with God? And that this whole project, this whole call that he called us to, is, has been foreseen from before creation was even made. He's the lamb that was slain before the world. Right? We, this is God's plan for us. Hallelujah. You know, I said this, I said this, and, and, and I'm not going to go into this too much. We, you have to recognize what the body of Christ is, and the body of Christ is the church. You know, some people today have taken the Bible and turned the Bible into the body of Christ. Right? Don't they say it? They say this is, Jesus is the word of God, and this is Jesus. 
right? Now, is Jesus the word of God? Is this the word of God? Is the gospel the word of God? Is what Jesus preached the fullness of the gospel and everything you need? And is this the inspired word of God? But is this the body of Christ? Not according to this. According to this, the church is the body of Christ. So you can't be a Christian without the church. You can't be a Christian. You can't be fighting for the faith that was once delivered if you're not fighting for the one universal church, for the unity of the Christian believers all over the world. Hallelujah. 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 Well, I'll tell you what, today's a good day to be fighting for that. Today is a good day to be fighting for that. It's also your faith weekend, and we have here prayer requests from all over the world. You know, there's no distance in the realm of the Spirit. You know, uh, one of the men who we quoted, who was a disciple of Paul, uh, Ignatius, he was Bishop of Antioch, who was appointed by the apostles. He said, uh, speaking of the church, when he was writing to Polycarp's church, the Smyrnians, the church of Smyrna, he said, where the whole church is gathered, where the, where the church is gathered with the bishop, there is the whole church. Or the whole, he used the word universal. So where the church is gathered with the bishop, there is the whole church. And so he said to the Smyrnians, when you gather, the whole church is gathered. When you gather, the whole church in heaven and in earth is there. If that's not no separation, if that's not no distance in the realm of the spirit, I don't know what is. They weren't live streaming back then. It was 107 AD. But there was no distance in the realm of the spirit. And so when we gather, the whole church is there. The whole church is gathered together. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us on the Christian Harfouche Ministries podcast. Join us on our other podcast, Miracles Today. Connect with us at globalrevival.com and we'll see you next week.